Picture this, you're sitting down to watch a live poetry performance. The first poet takes the stage, and as they begin to read, they're accompanied by a live jazz band. If this sounds intriguing, well, you're in luck. International Jazz Poetry Month returns to Pittsburgh on May 2nd. The festival features more than 50 artists, including local jazz icons and poets from Algeria, Cuba, Sudan, and Ukraine. Tickets to watch online or in person at City of Asylum's home on the north side are free. Get yours at cityofasylum.org before they're gone. Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, a controversial museum display is going away permanently, but questions remain about the fate of a controversial public statue. Plus, Pittsburgh movie buffs had a disappointing week. It's October 13th, the Friday News Roundup. I'm Mallory Falk, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. I'm with CityCast's Francesca DeBacco. Hello. Hey, happy Friday. And Sophia Lowe, good morning. Good morning. Happy Friday the 13th, everybody. Yeah, I guess I should have said Friday the 13th. (laughs) (laughs) Is anyone getting flash tattoos? I have seen quite a few things pop up. I am not. um, But if anyone is looking for a way to celebrate tonight, I put this in the newsletter. There's the Friday the 13th party happening at Trace Brewing. You can dress up. Uh, The Goal on Goal podcast is going to be there. There's going to be live music, uh, one night only drink specials, food by Stunt Pig, also flash tattoos, Sophia. So there you go. (laughs) And uh, a costume contest. So there's lots of stuff going around town uh, to celebrate tonight. So if you're in the mood for celebration, Francesca's got you covered. If you're superstitious and just want to lock your door, hunker down inside, (laughs) that's acceptable too. Yeah. Uh, So turning to the week's news, I want to start us off with an update on a story that we've been following for a while now um, about the fate of that controversial diorama at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. Uh, Francesca, Sophia, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I've never seen this diorama in person, but I have seen that sign about how the diorama is changing. Yeah, it's called Lions Attacking a Dromedary. It's been on display for over a century. It's right in the hallway there uh, near the Grand Staircase at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. Um, But it has created controversy because it contains a human skull. So just to paint a picture for anyone who hasn't seen it, the display shows these two Barbary lions attacking a man um, who the museum describes as a North African courier. He's riding a camel. Um, This man and the camel both have looks of like distress and anguish on their faces. It's really evocative. I think it's why it's one of the museum exhibits that sort of most stood out to people over the years. Um, Yeah, it's quite disturbing. Yeah, it's it's come under controversy, both because it contains this human skull and for some other reasons we'll get into. But so the museum just announced that it has a new policy where it's not going to display human remains without consent. And that means that this diorama is out. Um, And then there were also some human remains in the Hall of Ancient Egypt, and those have been removed as well. 
Yeah, this is sort of a part of a nationwide reckoning with uh, showing human remains in museums. I know Penn Museum on the eastern side of the state also removed some of theirs. Um, this debate has been going on for a long while. Um, I, I think the diorama was actually hidden behind a curtain at one point. Uh, Mallory, can you remind us how this all started, though? Yeah. So uh, back in 2017, the styrama was getting refurbished. And that's when the museum actually discovered that, you know, the human figure contained like a real skull and a jaw. That's wild that they didn't know beforehand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. After acquiring this in like the late 1800s. Um, so, you know, during this time, the museum changed the name of the diorama from Arab courier attacked by lions to lions attacking a dromedary because there were, you know, concerns about cultural sensitivity with the name, but it remained on display. Um, and then in 2020, you know, as you'll remember, there were protests for racial justice and questions about representation. Um, and people really started to take issue with this diorama because, you know, it's the scene of violence against a person of color. It's really distressing for a lot of people to look at. Yeah. So initially, the museum covered it up. Um, then they put it behind a curtain so that people could kind of opt into viewing it. Um, and then eventually it got put back onto display with new signage that provided more context and also like solicited um, feedback from museum goers about what they thought should ultimately happen to it. Um, and you know, there were questions at that point about should it stay, should it remain on display and kind of get used as a teaching tool about things like race, colonialism, the history of taxidermy, or should it get removed altogether? So that debate has kind of been going on for the past few years until the museum, you know, just announced its ultimate plans for this diorama. Yeah. Does the museum know how the skull ended up on display? Like what's the history of how that diorama was acquired? Yeah, so it was created by um, these French taxidermists who had a history of robbing graves to make their creations. Um, so while the museum doesn't know for sure exactly how this skull was acquired, like whether there was consent or not, um, it definitely raises questions that the people who put this together have that history of robbing graves. Mm -hmm. Right. It debuted at the 1867 Paris International Exhibition um, and then got acquired by the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, where it was on display for a while. So when did this get into Andrew Carnegie's hands? I'm assuming it was him who actually helped acquire this since it was so long ago. It was. Uh, he's the reason it's in Pittsburgh. But what's interesting is that part of the reason it was like up for grabs is because as far back as 1898, the American Museum of Natural History uh, determined that it was unscientific um, and they didn't want it anymore. So is there do you know why that museum decided it was unscientific? Is it the same reasons that the Carnegie Museum is talking about it now? Yeah, so I'm not 100% sure what the issue was at the time. Um, I know one point that's been raised about the accuracy of the diorama is it shows a male Barbary lion doing the hunting. And I guess it was much more common for female lions to hunt. Oh. So that may have been part of it. Um, but so, yeah, this museum didn't want it anymore. And Andrew Carnegie stepped in and said he'd like it for his newly formed museum. And he bought it for $50. So, wow. you know, by the time it landed here, other people had already called its legitimacy into question. And look at us now, like 120 years later. This is just kind of wild. 
Yeah, it sounds like the museum has thought about ways to do this display. Um, did they ever consider removing the human remains and revamping the diorama, like you said, uh, using it to think about uh, colonialism and that history? Yeah, I mean, so the thing is that there are more issues with this diorama than just the fact that it includes human remains. Um, so while this new policy is focused on those remains specifically, there are other objections, which we've kind of touched on. Um, our host, Megan Harris, actually talked to the museum's director, Gretchen Baker, about all of this more than a year ago. Um, and one of the things she brought up is how the display is not just scientifically inaccurate, but also culturally inaccurate. The title of the diorama for a long time was Arab Career Attack by Lions. Is that right? There you go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you look at the clothing, the headwear, some of the features on the individual, it's combining the traditions and customs and, and costumes of different communities. And so it's it's kind of it's making this very generalized, stereotypical image of an Arab man. And so kind of this mishmash of different cultures coming together today feels quite disrespectful of the, the cultures that would have been and the communities that would have been inhabiting that part of Northern Africa at that time. Wow, that's like worse than I thought. I didn't realize how complicated this was. I mean, I guess I assumed, but that's a good explanation. Yeah. And then she also brought up that there's this issue of how you would even refashion this head if you took out the human skull and jaw, like how you would rebuild this face. If we were to replace the the head on this sculpted individual, what would that, well, how would we depict the face of that individual? And so the conversation is, what is what are the choices that we have to make about, um, about skin color? We could it would give us an opportunity to redo the the headpiece, and that might help us address some of the cultural inaccuracies. So there would be certainly a, a lot of decisions about what that would look like. Because um, the way that it's constructed, the face features and the materials that you're looking at when you're looking at the face are actually attached to the skull bones. So it's not like you kind of have to start all over. You know, it's, it's integral yeah. to, the, to the sculpture, to the, to the object. I'm so glad we could bring this back up, uh, this conversation with Gretchen. Um, I think it's really important. Yeah. And, you know, in that interview, Gretchen also talked about how, you know, in general, when you go to natural history museums, not just here, but all over the country, you don't typically find white people on display. Um, you know, it is generally people of color. And like when this diorama was acquired, a lot of these displays were acquired during a period when some of these cultures were really displayed as uncivilized, primitive, exotic. And so, you know, she said that here at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, there's only like a handful of individuals on display. They're all people of color. And when it came to this display, it was really centrally located and depicted this act of violence and suffering. And so ultimately, that was really an issue that regardless of whether or not this figure had human remains, whether or not you could recreate it without them. Um, this display just like caused a lot of harm for people who would come to the museum and look at it. And so ultimately the decision was made to just permanently remove it. 
Mm -hmm. I'm glad the museum is being thoughtful about this. Um, So Francesca mentioned that this conversation about human remains is something that's been happening at museums all over the country. And I know in some cases, uh, remains are given back to the descendants. Do we know what's happening with the remains here at this museum? Yeah, so as of now, the museum doesn't know where this skull came from. Um, They're planning to do, I guess, an isotope analysis using the teeth. I don't really know the full science behind that, but um, they're hoping that could help them determine um, where this person is originally from so that they could potentially repatriate or return him. Um, And they're going to keep the clothes and the taxidermy animals in their collection to potentially study or use in the future. Um, I think it's worth noting that there is a law called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act that was passed in 1990, and it legally requires museums to kind of address this issue of displaying human remains related to um, indigenous peoples from North America. And the law mandates that indigenous human remains that were discovered after it was passed in 1990 have to be returned to the lineal descendants of indigenous peoples. Yeah, but we know that this process can be long and messy. Uh, CityCast producer Elizabeth Kama actually did a deep dive on this for us earlier this year because the Carnegie actually has more than 700 human remains in funerary objects in its possession. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it'd be this many. Just not on display. Um, And it's only repatriated a little over 100 since the 90s. Um, I would highly recommend listening to that episode about why it's so complicated to return these human remains. And we'll drop a link in our show notes so you can so you can listen. Yeah. And we'll also include a link to Megan's full interview with Gretchen Baker, the director of the Carnegie History Museum, so that you can hear that as well. Do you like to dance, look at beautiful art, eat gourmet snacks, people watch? Well, mark your calendars for Friday, June 7th for one of my favorite parties in Pittsburgh. It's Mattress Factory's 25th Garden Party. The theme this year is make-believe, and it's all to celebrate and support the creatives in our community. There's going to be live music, an open bar, an art auction, and probably my favorite, the costume contest. Trust me, I will be judging yins and so will everyone else there be playful be imaginative explore your magical realm because this is a theme party you want to come dressed to impress you must be 21 and up to attend and rest assured every dollar raised goes directly towards supporting the museum its art its education and all of its community outreach initiatives get your tickets now to the 25th mattress factory garden party they are in our show notes and online at mattress.org. So the diorama at the History Museum, it's not the only um, relic we have that people have been kind of reckoning with and grappling with uh, since, you know, the summer of 2020. Sophia, you've got an update on a public statue that's been the source of a lot of controversy. 
Yeah, yeah. And that statue is the Christopher Columbus statue in Shenley Park. Um, So earlier this week, city council passed a bill to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day beginning next year. So that'll be the second Monday in October, the same day that Columbus Day is recognized federally. And this same week, Commonwealth Court had a hearing about what's happening with the Christopher Columbus statue in Shenley Park. Uh, People have called for its removal. Yeah, this has also been going on for a while. Take us back to when this started in 2020 and then where we are now. Yeah, so people who want the statue taken down have criticized Columbus for his legacy of colonialism, for enslaving and murdering indigenous people. And in 2020, the city's art commission unanimously voted to take down that Christopher Columbus statue. And this actually uh, went a little further back in 2019, Pram Rajkapal. Uh, At the time, he was a recent Pitt grad, had actually reached out to the Arts Commission about taking the statue down. A Pitt News article also said that he worked with the university's Native American student organization and got in touch with the Council of Three Rivers American Indian Center. Um, So then after the Art Commission's vote in 2020, uh, the mayor at the time, Mayor Peduto, later agreed with them and wrote a letter saying that that statue should go to a private residence. And isn't that when they sort of covered it up? It was covered in plastic for a while there. Yeah, it was covered in plastic to make sure that the statue wasn't vandalized. And I think some of it is still there if you drive past the statue. Yeah, it's really bizarre looking. Um, it's interesting. It's just interesting. This and the diorama behind the curtain, how many things have just sort of like visually been in limbo since these debates started? Yeah. And the Italian Sons and Daughters of America, ISDA, really feel strongly about the statue staying up. So they actually filed a lawsuit against the city uh, after this decision was made to take the statue down. Yeah, people feel really strongly about this. I mean, I have Italian heritage and I can really separate my lineage from Christopher Columbus. Like, I don't see him as a hero uh, to Italian-Americans. But what is their argument for keeping the statue up? Yeah, the ISDA said that for them, the statue represents Italian-American history and contributions to Pittsburgh. So, um Yeah, for them, this is someone that they feel is important. But my understanding is that the basis of this lawsuit, this argument is not about, you know, what a hero, how heroic they think Columbus was. It's actually kind of about nitty gritty legal stuff. Yeah. So this gets into ordinances. Uh, The attorney for the ISDA, George Bocchetto, said that since the statue was put up with the ordinance from the city council in 1955. City council is the one that needs to pass an ordinance to get this taken down. Uh, The mayor can't decide this. The art commission can't decide this. And Bocchetto was also the same lawyer who represented the group in Philly that wanted to keep the Christopher Columbus statue up uh, on the other side of the state. But the city ultimately like has control over things on city property, right? Yes, uh, exactly. That's what a common pleas judge actually said. So this judge sided with the city on this in 2022. But ISDA appealed the decision, which is why it went back to court this week. Yeah, I was reading up on this and it seems like this decision was connected to this Supreme Court ruling back in 2009, um, where there was a proposal to put a religious monument in a city park in Utah. um, And the city rejected that proposal. And the court ultimately ruled that that monuments in city parks are essentially like 
represent government speech. And so governments have the right to regulate them. And so it sounds like that's what this judge here uh, was basing his decision on. Mm-hmm. But apparently that common pleas ruling was not the final word. So, Sophia, tell us about what happened this Wednesday during the Commonwealth Court hearing. Yeah, it was pretty much a similar argument to before. Pacheco told the court that according to the original ordinance, the city is supposed to maintain the statue in perpetuity um, and that the city council needs to be the ones uh, making that decision to remove the Columbus statue. One judge asked if ISDA could even bring this lawsuit to the city. Uh, The statue was spearheaded by the Sons of Columbus of America. Um, That group no longer exists. And Bocchetto said that ISDA is the successor organization. And WESA reported that another judge asked Bocchetto if city council were to vote on this statue, if, you know, this hearing would be happening now. And Bocchetto said, quote, probably not. So it definitely seems that this legal battle just comes down to like these minor details. So do we know the timeline, like what happens after this hearing? When are we going to get the final word on whether or not this statue can come down? Yeah. So now the Commonwealth judges are just considering the arguments. So there's not a clear date for when a decision is going to be made. But um, over the next couple months, there might be some updates. And, you know, Sophie, you've talked a lot about what this Italian-American group has to say about, you know, why they believe this statue is important and should stay up. But what have indigenous peoples here said about the statue? The Pittsburgh City Paper asked two indigenous women about their thoughts on the statue in 2020. Alexandria Clara Kent Reed said, quote, he needed to be removed in 1492. And Autumn Marie Chilcote, I hope I'm saying her last name correctly. I didn't find a pronouncer. Um, She said that if the statue does stay up, Columbus shouldn't be seen as a hero. And we need to be honest about him as a rapist, murderer and slaver. But her dream would be to, quote, repatriate the land to the Council of Three Rivers and let the nations decide what to do with the statue and the land. This question of who should ultimately determine what ends up happening to a statue reminds me of this interview that we did last year um, about the Stephen Foster statue um, that was taken down. It was sort of this very racist depiction of Stephen Foster with a black man sitting at his feet playing the banjo. Uh, That got removed. And right now it is actually at a museum in Los Angeles where it's going to be part of a display that the curator described to us as Confederates and Friends, um, looking at the legacy of some of these statues and monuments. And he really talked about how each individual community should be the one to determine you know, whether something stays up with additional context, whether it gets, he talked about some cities thinking they might melt down statues and especially bronze ones and turn them into something new. And just this idea of like, what do you do with these pieces? Um, I think people are still reckoning and grappling with that. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see if this Columbus statue actually comes down, where it goes and how it's used in the future, if, if and when it's moved out of this public park. Yeah, I think we'll be talking about this for a long while. This is great context, Mallory. We'll link that episode in the show notes. So switching gears here, Francesca, you've got sort of disappointing news for movie buffs who were excited about maybe being able to catch a flick or two downtown. 
Yeah, there was this proposition from the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust to create a six-screen movie theater downtown. Um, it was planned in the former Bally Total Fitness Club that's on 6th Street, um, and it was going to be this entire cineplex. Um, the city has really been entertaining this idea for eight years, but they finally nixed it. It just got too expensive. They reassessed it, and the renovation costs nearly doubled. Um, but it would have been so cool. You know, this building was formerly the Gateway Theater, which closed in 1980, and it just would have been a really neat revitalization to bring, you know, a theater back to downtown. So where's all that money going instead? Uh, yes. So instead, the money will go to improvement projects at the Biom, the Benham Center and O'Reilly Theater. No one will complain about that. That's great. I'm, I'm glad that they're getting updates. Um, people will just miss out on catching a flick downtown. So I know there's this national trend of movie theaters closing down. There's not the same demand that there was. But I was definitely disappointed when I moved back to Pittsburgh to see that like some of the theaters I'd, I'd grown up going to didn't exist anymore, both like a bigger space like the South Side Works and then, you know, smaller kind of indie theaters like the Regent Square Theater. Um, it, you know, seems like there's just fewer spots to catch movies, especially if you don't want some like gargantuan Cineplex, although that might have been what this was going to be. But so, yeah, it had been nice to think that there might be a new spot on the scene that won't there won't be anymore. Yeah, me and my friends are just talking about this, uh, specifically the Southside Works. I don't know if you guys have been there lately, but it's getting really nice. There have been a lot of things put in there that attract more folks. I can just imagine people going to the new commonplace coffee and speckled egg for breakfast and catching like an early afternoon show or, you know, there's even a new Jenny's ice cream down there. It'd be like a perfect date night. It's just such a shame that they're getting more things down there that would um, that have become an asset. And and now people can't watch a movie. I, th I think it's now a co-working space. I'd rather watch a movie on a weekend. So, Francesca, that day out sounds really nice. Um, even with this downtown theater that isn't happening, there is some good news in that there have been some wins for smaller theaters, though. Yeah, that's right. So the owners of Row House Cinema in Lawrenceville actually plan to reopen Mount Lebanon's Dennis Theater. It's going to be this destination for film, culture, and history. And it's it's this partnership with the Dennis Theater Foundation. Um, they have quite an interesting history. It was opened in 1938 by the Harris family. If you recognize that name at all, John Harris was the co-owner of Pittsburgh's first Nickelodeon film theater on Smithfield Street. Um, so that's kind of an interesting tidbit. Um, and Row House also reopened Dormont's Hollywood Theater. So some wins there, definitely. I wonder if that's who the Harris Theater downtown is named for. There is a theater downtown. It's just not a giant cineplex. The Harris Theater shows a great independent films, but maybe that's the namesake. I never really thought about it. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, that'd be cool. I am not a huge movie person, but I feel like I aspire to be an indie film person. And I feel like with all these small theaters, that'd be a really great place to meet people and also just kind of get that film experience and see what people are into. Yeah. And I mean, I am not a Marvel person. And it feels like if you go to any of these like bigger theaters, that's kind of all you can get. So I, I do always person, like, which is yeah. why I've been to the big theaters more. <laughs> no, this is why I always check what's at the Harris. And I used to always check what was at the Regent Square Theater, RIP. Um, but to try to find something if I just don't want CGI 
superheroes bashing in each other's faces. I don't know. I don't actually know what happens in Marvel movies, <laughs> or Taylor Swift concert this weekend. <laughs> <Too. laughs> well, um, I've got maybe some picks for you guys then if you're not into um, the big commercial movies. So I did a segment in the newsletter where you can catch Halloween movies. A lot of them are at these smaller theaters. Um, Row House Cinema, which we referenced earlier, has their Row House of Horrors event that starts on October 16th. Um, They've got The Nightmare Before Christmas, Halloween, Mad God, Trick or Treat, Scream. It will all be playing until October 24th. And then the Dormont Theater we were talking about um, has a family-friendly outing that looks really cute. They're doing a showing of the 1993 classic Hocus Pocus, um, and there's going to be a costume contest. And I love this part, guys. They're going to have black rescue cats there. Um, for adoption. (laughs) Yeah, that's on October 21st. And then sort of a a bigger screen, but I think this is a little bit more exciting. The Rango's Giant Cinema at Carnegie Science Center will be showing Ghostbusters on October 14th, Hocus Pocus on October 21st, and Night of the Living Dead, filmed right here in Pittsburgh with George Romero on October 28th. Well, as someone whose dog is literally named after the ghost dog from The Nightmare Before Christmas, I am excited to get to check that out on a big screen, which I haven't done since it you know, first premiered and I was a little kid. Thank you for this roundup, Francesca. Everyone should definitely, if that was like a little too fast for you to catch in real time, go check out the Hey Pittsburgh newsletter where you can find all of this. Yeah, we'll put a link to the article in the show notes. There's even more than I mentioned. So check them out and celebrate the season. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. Music is by Benji. Megan Harris is our host. Our audio producer is Sophia Lowe. Francesca DeBecco writes our newsletter, which was edited this week by Will Fulton and Brian Vance. And I'm your lead producer, Mallory Falk. We'll be back on Monday with more news from around the city. Have a great weekend, everyone. Are you okay, buddy? (laughs) I don't know. My brain is not working. It's okay. You're doing great.